it's the idea that you have to kind of go in a way or to find a path that people haven't found before in order to achieve something meaningful. I think there's a lot of echoes of that and a lot of venture capitalists talk. I think Keith Raboy is a big one who talks about the personal monopoly. And I think it's where do you discover the intersection of skill sets that makes it so that no one else can do what you're doing? And I think that's in a lot of ways what's guided my path. Hello and welcome to episode number 238 of the Armin Show podcast in the place to be with the Armin Show shirt. Shout outs to Mary Mullen from Scotland. On this episode, I have, this is a first in multiple aspects, but one big one, ex-athlete, soccer player, professional soccer, major league soccer, turned founder, funder with a mindset that I resonate with, Cameron Porter. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to be there. It's uh, serendipitous on how we got connected, but uh, excited to chat more. This is true. For the story, I like to point out things more. I'm trying to give more context than I used to do. I just jump into things before, but <laughs> with context, I found Cameron, my friend Gary, who's been on the show before, singer-songwriter, very in tune with individuals. He was like, you guys have some similarities. Check it out. It was true. I looked at Cameron's blog, Long Live Blogs and Text. I like analytical people who describe, they say what they're thinking. Not many people do. And then I checked his podcast with David Perell, a writer, Maybe a future guest. Wonderful episode. I'm going to link that one too after this because I listened to the whole thing gladly. And so that's how I found Cameron. And my name, Armin, the letters of Armin are in the word Cameron. So shout outs to that. I think of these kinds of things. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, Cameron, how is your day going? Day is going well. Day is going well. It's been a busy one. We have a few companies that we've launched this year working out of our offices here at Alicorp, and one of them's fundraising. So things are a bit hectic because we're trying to wrap things up before the Thanksgiving break, but it makes work exciting and, and, and that's fun. Mm -hmm. Now, Alicorp is your company. You are part of a group in it. What do you do there? You're currently doing that. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Ally Group, Ally Corp is an organization that was started by Kevin Ryan, who's probably one of the, the better known entrepreneurs, especially out of New York. And Ally Corp is an organization that he started after selling DoubleClick to Google. Um, so in 2008, Ally Corp became a vehicle through which him and his co-founder, Dwight Merriman, launched companies. Um, so I've joined a team of five people here, and our focus is to launch two to three new companies every year, as well as do early stage investing here in New York City. This is cool. How did you get into this category in the first place? Because when you were five years old, if somebody asked you, do you want to found companies and fund them? Did that come to mind at all? <laughs> no, that would have never come to mind. I can't say I was that forward looking in my career in any capacity. I, I, I barely knew I was going to go to college to play soccer. When I got to college, I thought I was going to study economics and ended up as a computer science major. I was certain I was going to complete college, but then I dropped out to play professionally. Um, the whole path is one of serendipitous connections pulling me in new directions and just being open to opportunities and kind of always having a diverse set of, of interests along the way. And that, that's really how I ended up here at Alicorp was just having an exploratory mindset. Um, and after my playing career, just being in touch with some of the, the right people who also had that mindset. I like this part a lot. Exploratory mindset. I'm very with it. Taking risks, little forks in the road, not being so stuck in a certain path. It's almost, it's very weird to me when it's like, you talked about this in multiple aspects in your other episode. I like that concept of if it's such a well-defined path and everything's set up to follow the meme that is before you, is that even 
it's not appealing to me. To me, it's like death. Like if you can see the path already to the end, you died already. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a book called Why Greatness Can't Be Planned, and I'm I'm blanking on the author's name right now, but I believe he was a computer science professor out of like the University of Florida. Um, and I don't think the book got that much notoriety, but what was interesting about it is it outlines the point you're exactly referring to, which is this idea that if there's a heuristic for getting to something that you perceive as great, the heuristic must be flawed or else other people would be following that to get to greatness. Um, it's the idea that you have to kind of go in a way or to find a path that people haven't found before in order to achieve something meaningful. I think there's a lot of echoes of that and a lot of venture capitalists talk. I think Keith Raboy is a big one who talks about the personal monopoly. And I think it's where do you discover the intersection of skill sets that makes it so that no one else can do what you're doing? And I think that's in a lot of ways what's guided my path. And I think a lot of the most interesting people I meet kind of have that that path in mind, um, or at least the idea that they're they're open to new experiences because they put them in a position that others can't replicate. Yeah, I just looked it up. It's Joel and Kenneth are the names of the people that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. One thing I just thought when you said that, you mentioned intersection. So a few things come to mind. You talked about Safi Bacall in a recent episode. I interviewed him about loon shots, the S-type and P-type innovation. Uh, P-type is you just come up with a new thing. S-type is you combine things and make them work together, which is what you're more along the lines of. And when you said that, it made me think of the Santa Fe Institute. A few of the authors I've interviewed, they studied there. It combines like complex systems, biology, physics economics and cool things come out of it that could not have happened if it was like narrow category and let's just I don't see anything else it is more efficient in the short term it's not more efficient in the long term and I always think long term do you always think long term in that way yeah I, I think you always have to have a long-term perspective and I think it's always interesting to think about how can you push yourself to be at the intercept interesting intersections I remember in college, being very interested in, in graph theory, I was studying computer science, and, and one of the projects I really considered doing as independent work was essentially looking into indexing either all the academic research or even just like TED Talks, um, pulling out the keywords from these transcripts, and then looking at how this network of connections between the topics of TED Talks would grow over time, and then seeing as people made a talk, how it connected to kind of these disparate clusters and seeing if there are any patterns to the way knowledge grows and expands. And I, and, I, and I have this implicit belief that there are and that the people who kind of are pushing academic research forward are kind of finding those intersections. And I think that's a lot of what the Santa Fe Institute does by putting these people in the same room and not necessarily requiring someone to have the expertise to speak about something. Um, and I think that's what's really exciting about what I work on today is that you try to apply that same model to the exploration for company formation. Yeah. Long live exploration. Now, one thing that came to mind, you also went to Princeton before you did what you currently do. My next guest will be Princeton neuroscience professor Michael Graziano. So that's kind of a cool linkage that I saw <laughs> and thought of that. He talks about the, the mind and a few of my guests have been about the mind mostly. Now, what are some things you took away from your time at Princeton? I think the, I mean, the biggest things that I took away from Princeton, I think at a, at a meta level was just the power of your peer group. I think that if you look at athletics overall, I mean, you spend a lot of time with your team. And I think I was very fortunate to have been exposed to a group of people on my team who had similar interests off the field and that they're the ones that kind of pushed me into this path in computer science. And, and through that path, I got exposed to a world of thinking that is incredibly divergent than I think from most other majors. Um, 
it's all about first principle thinking, breaking things down to their, their base levels and finding elegant solutions to larger problems. And so that on an academic level, I think is what I took out of Princeton the most is that the, the computer science program there, I think is one of the top ones in the country. And what makes it so exceptional is that it's not driven by the idea that you need to learn this programming language to do this thing. It's driven by the idea that there is, yes, there is a, there is a theory to the way computers work. And that theory and understanding can then expand to other domains and applying that thinking elsewhere, whether it's whether it's mathematical or algorithmic, whatever it is, is kind of the base layer that you need. And the ancillary things on top of that are, are choosing the language to implement your ideas in. Um, but that's largely a second order effect of kind of this, this first order thinking uh, that needs to be there. And, and that's something I really took away. It's it's how do you how do you kind of establish those principles of thinking that can kind of guide you later on? And I felt fortunate, honestly, to be such a beginner going into computer science at Princeton and not having coded before, because it really forced you to, to go and learn the, the real basic stuff that at that point, and not assume that you could kind of sneak your way in or, or start anywhere ahead of anyone else. And, and I think sometimes it just really helps to be a beginner, even if you're late to the game, because you spend more time later on learning these basics that are really going to set you up for success in the long run. That's cool. Also, you have nothing like messed up learning that you did in the past that'll throw you off. Now you're starting from scratch with some of the best teaching that can be. Yeah. That's, a nice yeah. Feature. That's no, cool. It, it, it's an incredible feature. And I, I mean, honestly, I think even looking back at my time at Princeton, I, I do wish I spent more time actually interacting with the professors one on one. I think the people there are generally very open to these interactions. And I don't I think although I took advantage of it in the sense of like office hours or things like that, there are so many opportunities as a student to engage and form relationships with these people who are incredible thinkers. And I think a lot of students treat their time at college as something that's very transactional instead of relationship driven. When when I reflect on my time in prison, it's it's the most valuable thing is the relationships you get out of it. And those don't have to just be within your peer group. Those can extend to the people who are kind of sharing this knowledge with you. Very people oriented. I always look at the I'm heavily focused on people. Michael Graziano was there while you were there. Come on, Cameron. Kid yeah, I know. I know. Now we need to reconnect with him. Maybe if he, you do this and I listen to his podcast. I would do it. have a real conversation. Yeah. I like that kind of stuff. To me, that's the, my similar people, the, it's a minority. Now, backtracking, this is what you are more early on known for. By the way, how do you view it, uh, your soccer career? Do you view it as very relevant I was looking at it and I was thinking, is it better that it got cut off shorter and now you get to the stuff, this stuff? How do you look at that? Yeah, I think you're getting onto something that I think anyone who's played professional sports feels is that it's very hard to stop playing professional sports. And the reason being is it's an incredibly attractive job. You're usually doing something that you love very much and you get to do it for some part of the day. You're economically well off. Um, and then you have this incredible amount of free time to pursue whatever you want. And to stop that is a really, really hard choice. And I think I feel fortunate that I suffered a series of kind of really bad injuries that made me have to make this choice sooner rather than later. And what I ended up getting to the conclusion was I really felt like that I experienced 80% of what it means to be a professional soccer player. I had the highs of winning championships, the lows of kind of having my body break down. There are things I never got to do, whether that was playing on a national team. But because I, I really could reflect and say, you know what, there's probably 20% I haven't had. Am I okay sacrificing that if it would take another 10 years for me to get that last 20%? And I think the answer is, is yes. And what, it, what I took away from sports is, is there's no better environment 
for just learning about what what it what is team building, what is camaraderie, what does it mean to bring people together for a shared goal, no matter how superficial it is. Ultimately, we're a bunch of guys kicking a ball on a field. And so, like, why why is that a meaningful endeavor, and how do you get people excited about doing that and being a part of it? Um, so it ended up being. I'm happy that I was pushed to make that decision sooner rather than later, because now I can take those skills and apply them to an early career and something I'm also excited about. Yeah. One other thing that came to mind is when you were playing, did you notice any uh, mindset differences between you and maybe the average players of soccer? Were you more entrepreneurial or analytical? Were there any key differences you were like, hmm, there's some things I'd like to grab for that maybe some individuals are not as inclined towards. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest differences, I think, was that I didn't necessarily have my ego attached to the game and that my, my sense of worth was not tied to whether the coach viewed me as the best player or the person that needed to do this. And I think in general, when you can kind of detach your ego from the thing you're doing and trying to perform in, it gives you the opportunity to come from a sense of play. And that you can you can do this thing because you enjoy it and not because you need to be good at it. Um, and I think in part that's because I, I spent a lot of my time kind of doing two things at once. I was at the same time working with the MLS front, front office or a startup I had helped kind of build while I was in college. And so that made me view soccer in largely the same light as I viewed it most of my life, which was this activity that I do because I thoroughly enjoy it. And most players, I don't think, have the pleasure of approaching it from that perspective. Um, and it just means that the emotional roller coaster is is much stronger. I mean, ultimately, for a lot of these players, their livelihood depends on them making enough money as a player to set themselves up for the rest of their life. That's a survivorship. That's survival based. Whereas for me, it was it was approaching the game from a level of what are what are you taking out of this experience? What are you getting from being around some of the top coaches in this country? What are you getting around from people who are in the top one percent, maybe even more of of the thing they do? And how are you can how can you take those learnings and, and take them elsewhere? Mm-hmm. I want to throw in unrelated, but I was once on a soccer team in sixth grade called the Arctic Blast. It was the name of our slushy at our school. And that was my <laughs> team, left fullback. You couldn't pass me, but the, oh, this was a thing. I didn't play front because I was always worried people in the back. I didn't trust them like they would defend properly. What led you yeah. to be a striker? Were you just always that end? No, I, I definitely wasn't always a striker. I remember when I was younger playing in the defense but i think it, it, it probably comes from my high school playing um my high school is a very small school i think we graduated with 46 people in the class so only half of those are boys and mm. we didn't have a football team because we didn't even have enough boys in the entire school to put together a team <laughs> but uh we did have a soccer <laughs> kind of the biggest sport and that kind of that time there put me in a position where someone needed to, to score the goals. We, we just weren't deep enough as a team to kind of have other people that were able to do that. And it was that time where you just kind of pushed into a new role that ended up exposing me to playing forward or whatever it may be. That makes sense. One thing I looked at was, so when your knee got completely destroyed, by the way, for the people that know, just destroyed. Uh, by the way, I don't really watch soccer, so I didn't know these things happened. I kind of checked after the fact, but it's mm-hmm. like knee is a knee, you know, was that, that's like a fork in life, right? Like that's a moment where suddenly, boom, what is another fork you have had in your life separate from your knee being injured that way that you noticed? I mean, no it, there, there's, there's many forks. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest fork that um, preceded that one was really the choice to play professional soccer. I mean, that, that wasn't something that I intended to do. It wasn't my clear aspiration going into college. Even my 
summer before my senior year, I was working on a startup with three of my friends. We had hired other students from Princeton and we were building that business with the intention of launching it after graduation. I spent none of that summer kicking a soccer ball. And then it was going into that senior year, you have this great year, and the opportunity exposed itself that I might have the ability to play at the professional level and get drafted into the MLS. When that happened, I had to make the choice. Not only did I want to drop out of Princeton, did I want to give up on this like entrepreneurial path that I had then dedicated the last year to kind of pushing forward, um, which, is, which, is a, which is a hard choice. And it got harder because most people don't know this, but when you're drafted, unless you're a top 10 pick, you don't have a guaranteed contract. You're essentially going into a tryout. It just means that that team has the right to sign you. So just because you're drafted at that time, you still, I could have ended up in a situation where I get cut by the team. I've dropped out from college and forsake the opportunity to kind of move forward with this startup. Um, so that was, that was honestly one of the hardest decisions, but ultimately it came back to um, kind of regret-based thinking. And uh, the thing I would have regretted at 80 was not having tried. And knowing and having that frame in mind, I felt comfortable moving forward with with the choice to just just give it a shot and see what would happen. Mm-hmm. I like that mindset you bring about the regret at eighty. I've talked about that. Some few people have talked about that. Where when you're eighty, that's it. You don't get to be like I could have. All you just get to do is sit there and say, "Darn, it's not fun." And then when it's earlier on, you might have all these some sort of pressure towards you, or I'm not sure if this is fitting, but you can still do something you still have a moment like moment to move i think about that also that relates to your principles which i want to that's a thing i want to heavily focus on but another one i relate to that is let's say michael jackson or chester bennington or kate spade or all these people that are gone in some form or martin luther king whoever people from long ago they're no longer here they can't even move their arm because they're no longer here so i think about like every person now has more ability than some of these grades because i can move my arm and they're gone so different perspectives I want to talk about your principles because very few people have, I think, even thought about their principles of their life. I think most people that rules out a good chunk. And then of that group, the ones that actually write it down and say, this is what I identify with at this current time is like four people. Okay. And also (laughs) you got that from somebody, Will Minshew, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. He had a page like that too. I thought that was cool. Now, uh, let's, so you have it in four different categories, which is kind of cool. Principles, relationships, identity, framework. I want to check some of these and also like what possibly led to some of these understandings. That's a cool one right there. Uh, A few of them, by the way, connect to like Jay-Z quotes. I thought about you saying don't avoid pain. He (laughs) said, don't run from the pain, go towards it. Do you uh, like some Jay-Z lyrics or do you identify with anything like that or lyrics? I can't say. I honestly think I'm one of the least musically inclined individuals. I I, I cannot tell you the music I listen to. Essentially, I have my Spotify daily or playlist or weekly playlist. And and I don't even I don't even know the songs that come across it. I'm just like Spotify has done a good enough job of categorizing me. Um, I don't think much Jay-Z comes across that list. So I would be happy to learn about these lyrics that he's espousing that I'm living by because that Mm -hmm. makes me feel even cooler. If right, I'm living Jay-Z's lifestyle. <laughs> there's a few. Of them. There's not many. I can't because I I pinpoint them. There's some a yeah. lot that I couldn't point to, but there's a few that uh, don't run from the pain, go towards it. Um, I I never sat back feeling sorry for myself. If you don't give me heaven, I'll raise hell till it's heaven. Putting aside the religious part, it's like whatever. I'll do whatever it takes to get it. There's a lot of ones I identify with, and uh, your principles kind of relate to them. Now, as far as your principles here, one of them is. Uh, will it matter in five years? Do you think of that often? Like, is this thing going to affect me in five years? If not, then disregard it. Yeah, I, I think that 
we we carry along a lot of essentially just like mental baggage in the face and the, and the fact that we face so many choices every single day from the, the food we eat to the clothes we wear. And it's incredibly easy to get caught up in, in any moment thinking that those choices are, are significant. Um, I think where it manifests most clearly is just like around diet. I, I just think that there's a certain threshold to food. If it, if it tastes good enough, it's fine to consume. This is, this is something that my girlfriend and I uh, definitely diverge on. And when I'm preparing food for myself, she's often dissatisfied. Um, but I why is she dissatisfied? Mostly because I'll be like, I could be making mac and cheese. And instead of going into the fridge and getting out the milk, I might just use olive oil instead. Instead of putting it in a bowl and adding Parmesan cheese, I'll just kind of eat it. I basically think of it as there's a certain minimal threshold that needs to work to get to where I'm going to be satisfied. And ultimately, whether it tastes kind of good or really good in five years, it, it's just not going to make a difference. It's not going to move the needle in my lifetime. And I'd rather have that, that kind of mental freedom to focus and think about other things that I'm just genuinely excited about. And, and that doesn't mean you can't value the little things. Like, I think a lot of people, if we're talking about cooking, just value the process of cooking as something that's meditative. And that's just not where I, I allocate or view that time as, as something that adds long-term value. And so it's, it's all about thinking whether the choices you're making are kind of additive or merely just, just momentary and superficial and things you need to move through to get to the choices that you think actually drive value in your life. Um, mm -hmm. and, and once you kind of have that framework, I think you become clear about what you care about and you can kind of back into more of the principles you want to kind of work, work forward from. Right. It's sort of like the, what you're building and will it last later? And then just the right now, these things that are tomorrow, it doesn't matter. And then this is where you remember this tomorrow. And this one, you just like, oh, I took some time out. Yeah. And I, think, time. and I think a lot of people just feel that there are choices they need to be making. They feel this like anxiety of like, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to make this choice. And oftentimes, like inaction is the simplest path forward. And just realizing that that's a, that's a choice you can have is, is eye-opening. Um, I, 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 really, I really believe that when you're kind of freed and, and maybe have almost that meditative, contemplative mindset about all the decisions you're making, you, you free room in your life to kind of make better, big choices. And, and ultimately, I think you can kind of figure out how important the work or your, the things you're doing are by the number of choices that you're making that are under high uncertainty in terms of the outcomes. And I would say that like choosing between the mac and cheese or the salad at, at your, at your local restaurant is not, not a high uncertainty outcome choice. You, you kind of know which one you can do. And the choices you should be focusing on are the ones where it could really turn out poorly with whatever way you go, but you need to spend your mental effort figuring out, you know, what are my, what are my Bayesian priors? What do I feel about this thing? And what are the consequences of those choices? And the more time you spend on those like high uncertainty choices, I think the more satisfactory your life's going to be. You're still playing. You're not going towards being what I would call kind of dead inside at some point where it's everything is set up. Yeah, that's cool. Playing a little bit. You, one of them you say is looking at outputs, not inputs. Are you way more about creation than consumption? Is that where it goes to? Because I'm big on that. Yeah, I, I, I think honestly, this is one that's kind of driving me to, to write more and produce more and put things out there. Um, I think where we oftentimes run into the measuring inputs instead of outputs is, is in the workplace. And I think the simplest example of that is, is with engineering. I think some big organizations, and I don't think this is as common today, would measure the quality of a software engineer by the number of lines or the number of GitHub commits that they make. Um, 
And that doesn't necessarily correlate to the actual outcome that they're producing in terms of the product. Did it actually improve it? I could write terrible code. It's a tons of lines and, and, and it really means nothing. Um, and so I think there's, there's a way in which you can make sure that you're, you're actually measuring the things that are producing, that are moving the needle forward. I think that uh, Jason Fried at Basecamp does an incredible job of articulating this as an organization and how he thinks about structuring projects so that they produce outputs and not just letting you do work to fill the time um, and how kind of there is this like reorientation around around what is like workplace culture and habits. And I think honestly, Safi Bacall touches on this too in terms of when does the return on politics exceed the return on on work? And I think that it's those are all kind of derivations of this idea of you want places where measuring the outputs is what matters, not the inputs. And I think politicking would be an input in, in large in large companies. Yeah. Seth Godin, you know Seth Godin? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He used to write always about, there was a period when he was writing on his blog years ago, he talked for months about just shipping it. Whatever it is, just ship it out there, get it out there, work on it, you know, try your best at it, but if you don't have something that gets out there, there's no feedback loop, you're stuck. It just stops right there. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, if you're not, if you're not producing outputs, it's really, really hard to improve. And I, and I think that's one of the things I'm hoping to write more about, but it's this general notion of, what I'll call like minimum effective resolution, um, which is what is the what is the minimum way in which you can convey an idea to get feedback. Um, and the reason it's important to always kind of get the minimum idea out there is that the more the, the higher the fidelity is, the more resolution you provide, the more granular and superficial the feedback will be. The example that is kind of a, a classic or canonic, canonical example of this is um, during the Manhattan Project. There's a story of them talking about things around kind of atomic building the atomic bomb and whatever it is and, and no one really has feedback to provide there but all of a sudden they needed to build a bike shed on the site and every single person had an opinion on the bike shed even though it was such a small part of the details of the overall thing because you provided that detail and more people are capable of giving feedback there you kind of miss the whole opportunity to give feedback on what actually matters and i think oftentimes when we wait too long to kind of push our ideas out into the world to create these outputs we kind of get lower quality feedback we just get these higher and higher resolution feedbacks. It could be the font on your website or the color instead of the overall structure and what you're writing about. Um, and I think being aware of that kind of trade-off that you're making, the longer you take to push outputs out there, um, the, honestly, like the better your work will be in the long. Mm -hmm. This is true. They've thought about, yeah, like Lincoln Park said this when they were working with Jay-Z one time in the studio. It's like, we'll make these little edits at the end and nobody really cares about it. But if you ship out the constant steps along the way, the final product, you focus on the big picture, people can respond to the big picture. If you never get to that and these little things, they have no chance but to say, oh, well, you guys should change this word. Now you're wasting time on things that are irrelevant to the message. 100%, Bigger picture is 100%. key. This one here, in the topic of relationships on your principles page, incompetence over malice, what led to that realization? Because I, I go with that somewhat as well. I think that one of the things that I found, and I think it's, I think it in, in, in part it stems from social media, is just like seeing the amount of times it seems like someone has has inadvertently put words out in the world that may may harm someone, and the reaction from the masses is that they intentionally tried to harm me or put this notion into the this like the, into the marketplace of ideas um, that was meant to be detrimental to some other person and. And even though it may be some form of a negative externality, I think that 
you live a happier life when you assume that 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 action didn't come from a place of malice, but rather from incompetence, and that you are open to understanding how they could get there, and that maybe there's a way where you can provide some form of education or conversation. They understand why. Whereas when something's like when something comes from a place of malice, you are assuming an intentionality that might not be there. And I think the more often that we assume that someone's intentionally doing what they're doing, the harder it is to kind of find common ground. I think Sam Harris has a lot of interesting thinking here around, I mean, whether free will even exists. And I think that the interesting concept that ends up kind of coming out of the idea, if free will doesn't exist, is that people actually like, it's not that they're acting out of malice. It's just, this is who they are. This is like, they're inevitably going to do what they do because this is the person they've become. And if you think that, then there's no real, if you believe it's from malice, and there's no real action you can take. And if you believe it's out of incompetence, then then there's an educational component that you can help kind of push them into the person you want them to become and change their behavior. Um, but it's really honestly a way to to, to, to to honestly lower the mental baggage that I have to deal with in day-to-day -day life. And that it's much easier being in a world where you're you're assuming the best in, in the people you're interacting with instead of the worst. Mm-hmm. You're feeling a warm energy from them to yourself, at least for yourself. And then you can think, well, what can I bring that maybe gives them a little bit more competence in some category, helps them out. But it's not like this person's trying to destroy me for no reason. It's a little bit warmer. Yeah. 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 And, it, and, it, and I think it's important to understand, like, what type of error are you making? Like, if they were, like, if they're intending to be malicious and I categorize them as incompetent, they're still going to be malicious towards me. And so I've never, it, it's still kind of the same outcome. If they were actually incompetent and didn't know what they were doing or why they were doing it, and I approached them as if it was malicious, I've all of a sudden created a bigger problem than there was. And so the, the errors that come from kind of the miscategorization, I feel like are much more dramatic when you assume maliciousness instead of incompetence. Yeah, it can create something from nothing that it doubles up on the, but if you didn't do that and your energy is warm, it's just warm and then it's warm, mm -hmm. it doesn't build something. Yeah, I've thought about that with regards to fear as well. If you don't have internal low self-esteem or fear and somebody tries to pass their fear on to you through some commentary, there's nothing for it to hold on to. But if you have mm -hmm. fear or uh, low self-esteem, then it can attach to that part and then you go back and forth. I've noticed that concept. Oh, how do you think about fear, by the way? That's just a topic I want to... How fearless are you? How do you think about fear? Do you use it to propel yourself? What thoughts in that category? I, I honestly, I, I can't say I think too much about fear. Oftentimes when I think about fear, I, I conflate it with anxiety and I conflate that with uncertainty um, in the sense of I think that when you feel afraid, it's when you feel highly uncertain about the outcomes and like you see a spider and you, you assume that you need to be afraid of that because you're uncertain of whether it's going to hurt you or not. Um, I think when it when it comes to fear, when I find myself in a situation where I'm afraid of the choice that I have to make, it's often, it's often not because I don't know what to do or what I need to do. It's often because I'm afraid of, of honestly, the suffering that will go along with like making that choice. And I think that's where, I mean, honestly, that's one of the things I dealt with playing like with these injuries when I was playing is you have to decide whether you're going to commit to the painful parts of therapy, whether you're going to really push your body because in order to fix it, you really need to break it down. And there's so many, there's so many opportunities where we kind of run away from the fear just because we don't want to go through that suffering, even we, even though we knew that 
that kind of path that we're afraid of was the right one. And I think Ben Horowitz goes into this with uh, his, his thinking around which CEOs are great leaders. And it's the ones who kind of run towards that fear, who run towards that pain. And it kind of goes, it goes just along with, with um, that other principle in that you, sh you shouldn't run away from pain. You should kind of run towards it. Those are, that's where the returns are, are going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I, well, one, Kobe Bryant also spoke about that in an interview where he said when he got his Achilles uh, damage that I don't know if I can do this. It was like the thought of can I go through this repair process, which you also went through as well. Now, one thing that comes to mind is I was thinking this before you got your severe injury. Was there any uh, thoughts in your mind like I am playing in a certain way that this kind of thing could occur? I I was not thinking that way. And I think, I think part of that is just an experiential bias in that when I was in college, I played in every single game and without injury. And when you kind of get <laughs> espoused to, to that, or you get, you get that experience, you kind of assume that that's going to continue, even though statistically speaking, I think you could treat those as like each of game is like an independent event and you're rolling the dice each time and whether or not you're going to get hurt. And just because I, I, rolled the dice or flipped the coin in the other games and they'd all turned up heads and I never got hurt doesn't mean that I'm any more like less likely to get hurt in this next game. Um, so it wasn't something I was like thinking about in terms of the way I played, even though I think there are things about the way you play and the way you handle your body on the field that kind of dispose you more or less to getting hurt. But it wasn't, it wasn't on the top of my mind. And honestly, it was, it was a real surprise. And I think that was one of the hardest times in my life was kind of going through that process and reconciling the decisions I had made that led me to being someone who had this big injury and choosing this path over some other path, um, really kind of dealing with the regret, um, essentially of like, is this, what did I make the wrong choice and why? Mm. You went for the big move. Okay. That's the cool stuff. I think, you know, it's funny if this is good old simulation world, everything happened exactly at the right time at all times mm -hmm. for where it, it leads to. So I kind of look at it that way. Now, in the identity principle category, you have one high mental identity entropy. My channel on YouTube used to be called Armentropy because I combined my first name with that. I very much identify with entropy and disorder and uh, kind of messing with strangers in public and talking with people and stuff like that. Uh, how do you identify with entropy? And also, uh, do you ever do variety stuff with strangers or anything like that? I can't say I do much variety stuff with strangers. I think I'd, mm -hmm. I'll start with that and then go to the, the first part. But I feel fortunate in that a lot of what I do day to day is just exposing myself to kind of new people who are thinking about different things or starting new companies. And, and in that way, I feel fortunate in that I get a lot of high variety information kind of from those sources all the time. Um, in terms of what that kind of principle actually means to me is that I basically want I basically want it so that if you were to read any one article that I produced or hear one soundbite of what I said, you could essentially from that couldn't predict who I was. So if you, if I were like, if you were able to do that, an example would be like, all right, I, I don't think that we should allow immigration at all. If I said that, then you're going to be like, yep, he's probably highly conservative, blah, 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 blah. Now, the high entropy version of that would be if I said that and it turns out I'm highly liberal. It means that from whatever my thinking is, there's some lack of like predictive value of that statement. And I think overall, what that means is that somebody's operating from a set of first principles where they're taking each thing on a case by case basis instead of kind of 
deferring their beliefs about everything from some given belief and an identity that corresponds with it and not kind of being subject to the identities that correspond to any one belief you have. And, and really going back to say like, why, why do I believe this thing? Is it from an institution or identity that's putting that on me or from a belief I've kind of built from the bottoms up? You're not trapped in your own mental jail of some form. You're able mm -hmm. to respond like kids do, like a four-year-old. Yeah. When things happen, they don't start with like, well, <laughs> four things happened like this before. Three happened like, you know what? This is exactly what I've believed and I'm sticking with it. It's not fun at that point. I think, and honestly, this is one of the things that, that scares me most about publishing more content, writing more, is that the more you put out there, the more you create this, this identity, this work, that lives on its own. And I think the more you as an individual kind of outside of that work feel like you need to kind of protect it and live up to it and, and speak to it, even though your thinking may have changed. And I think the more you put out there, the harder it gets to maintain that, that separation because all of a sudden you've kind of, you've put your stake in the ground. How do you kind of move forward with that and remain open to the idea that that, that was just one point in time and one belief instead of feeling attached to that. And then that work that is not you, but is a part of you, just becomes who you are. And you feel kind of tied to it. I think that's, that's the hardest thing about kind of becoming more public about your thinking overall is you create something that people associate with you, even if it's not you, and you start binding yourself to it. Mm -hmm. I've thought heavily about that concept. I've always avoided it because of that. Having too much of a container of one thing, you get trapped into a little category. But then one day I switched to saying, wait a minute, a good chunk of people really I like things that are in containers so I went with container mm -hmm. mindset and then I still for regular time I'm myself so it's not like that shifted in some form yeah. and then a few are also glad about the like maybe do you feel that in your founding and funding that is somewhat of a container but you do it in that regard separate from you yeah I, a little bit one thing I want to add on to that is this is why I think podcasts are powerful they create kind of a, a long-form body of work but because the way people engage with them are almost like in a linear order, they don't search them. They don't go back to them to find your beliefs on anything. They allow you to kind of have this progressive mindset that each of these podcasts is moving you in some direction. That's, that's exploratory. Like we talked about before, whereas when you have written works that are kind of a, a canonical example of what you believe on the topic. And I think this is particularly true for interview based podcasts where you're kind of engaging with topics and ideas with new people versus you having a podcast where you just espouse this is what I believe on this topic. Um, I think they're very kind of different in nature and, and lend themselves to kind of different relationships with your identity. Um, yeah, that, that was a bit of a rant. <laughs> no, it's, that's the stuff. My earlier episodes, a lot of them were more, uh, some of them were just me and talking and I transitioned more to uh, with individuals and then certain individuals uh, more insight and connect with because it's more, there's something that, that's cooler. There's more variety, it has more branching. If it's just you, it starts to, oh, it's just your own little category. I have a bunch of raps on my computer I never released, but um, when you don't release it, it's kind of like you're just your own thing. If you just talk about yourself, it's just your own thing. But if you connect with people, you're part of the web of consciousness. It's much, uh, it feels healthier in a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Speaking of which, I have to add that in. You know, one, would you, do you have any inclinations to do a podcast? Two, what would it be called? Three, what would it be about? I mean, I think honestly, I would I would call the podcast pretty much the same thing as I, I call my blog. I'd call it incremental. And, and the reason I call my blog incremental or my website is just because I, I really believe that it's just small steps forward. And it's this, this principle of compounding is that 1% progress every day. And, and 
that's metaphorical, but is really what turns you into someone that you you won't even recognize a year from now. And I hope through the content that I'm sharing that some of the lessons I'm learning and the experiences I'm having can help other people go on on that path and the habits I'm developing um, can help kind of push me to do that. Uh, I think if I were doing a podcast, it would be in a similar vein. It's it's honestly, instead of looking at these these stories of people um, where we, we say, wow, well, one day this person built this great company, it would really be honing in on kind of the incremental progress, the small changes over time that these individuals are experiencing. I even think there's interesting room in the podcasting landscape to do things where you you always interview people twice, once like at the beginning of the year and once at the end of the year or over one year time interval. You ask them the same set of questions and then you look at the delta between it or even the first interview is a set of questions and then second interview is you reviewing those a year later and you just see how someone's thinking moves. I think it's those changes that are largely unexplored but but highly interesting and a lot of value. Because I honestly don't think you learn too much from someone just telling you, this is what I believe, because it's hard to adopt those principles. What's easier to adopt is going a layer deeper and saying, how did they get to these principles? And having more people speak to that process on how did they get to them? How are they changing? And being able to witness that, I think would lead to a lot of incremental progress for more people. Um, so that's honestly how I try and read even like biographies about, about successful individuals. It's, it's not so much here are the things they believed and that's why they're successful. It's wow what about their life and the way they lived it led them to a set of principles or beliefs or whatever it is or knowledge that made them successful? And how do you set yourself up so that you can have experience those situations or go down a similar path that may lead you to a different set of beliefs, but those could be equally as opportunistic as the one the other person had. The change, the moves, the white space, the actual progression versus it's done. Let's look at what's done. That's easy to do. Look at some Thing that's completed great but what gets there i like that idea of the before and after you know all, all my fans right now what are they saying oh cameron porter in a year sounds great guys so i mean that's what they're saying i just that's what they said that'd be great but that's a cool idea the follow-up the because mm -hmm. right if someone is making moves it'll show and also you'll see they did that with billy eilish lately she had uh, three interviews uh three okay and three interviews in a row where they saw the differences each time and it was very notable because it's her moment, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I think honestly, it's, it's even more interesting when people are younger and you get these high inflection point changes in thinking. Like if, if you, like when I think about the space I'm in, um, if you ask people right before they got their first institutional check-in and they raised their first round and a year later, ask that person what they think about entrepreneurship, you are just gonna learn something totally different. And I think, and I think that's the important part is realizing that you don't have to be at the point where you think about founding a company like Mark Zuckerberg when you're at the very beginning. You just mm -hmm. need to be at the point where you're prepared to kind of go on that journey and experience those changes along the way. Yep. The one thing I want to connect with that last one is audio, video, or text. Which one have you most identified with over the years that you like to take in content as? I definitely consume the most. Most of my content is consumed via audio, just because I tend to have a lot of time in transit or while I'm working out, I end up listening to a large number of podcasts. Um, I do love that format because I think it is, I think there's just a lot of nuance that is conveyed through audio and through the spoken word that is somehow just like very direct with who we are. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I think audio makes challenging, which is, and why I kind of try to read each night for an hour is that you don't have time to kind of form your own thinking. It's less of a back and forth and more of kind of a direct implant into your, into your brain. Um, and so 
reading is something where you're engaging with the material, you have time to kind of have your own thoughts. And I hope as I get older and maybe have more free time that I can spend more time in the reading category than the audio category. But I think the audio category is by far the, the most engaging of them all. I feel like for some reason, even versus watching video, I'm much more likely to kind of pull up Twitter in the middle of a movie and just kind of scroll through something. Whereas when I'm listening to a podcast, I'm somehow just like fully consumed in it. It's right there with you in your ear. Yeah. This is wonderful. Long live the podcast domain, which has boomed over the last few years. Cameron, what, this is one thing I always like to check at the end. What is one message you would say to all people of the world if you had a megaphone to the 7.7 .7 billion people on the earth that represents something about who you are or what you would want them to know? I think the one thing I would want people to know is, is don't be afraid of small steps forward. Just make sure you're making them. I think that too often we think that progress comes in giant leaps and it's just not the case. It's, it's always just the little steps, the unseen steps, and, and setting yourself up with the habits and rituals to make those is, is what I see as one of the most important things in life. That's wonderful. Cameron, I want to thank you for having been on episode 238 of the show. Wonderful, the insight, the mindset. Glad to have had you on. It was really a pleasure. Always enjoy chatting. Cool. And we are out.